0: You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries, both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss the axe murders of Velisca. Hello and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. (laughs) Did you know that whenever I begin to write this loose script of my episodes, I always attempt to start it in another way? Like, I'm like, well, I gotta mix it up. Let's start it with, like, what's up, or another day, another week, another mystery. But every time I do, I just end up deleting it because it just doesn't feel right. There is something about my intro, hello, hello, that I just can't let go. I've been starting my podcast episodes that way for so long that anything else just seems, I don't know, it just feels weird. feels almost criminal. I don't know. Don't mind me, guys. I'm just the queen of overthinking. You guys probably don't even care and are just like, whatever. We don't care about the intro. Let's just get down to the meat of the episode. But I don't know. I guess that's just what happens when you are creating something. You overthink every single detail. Details other people don't even notice because this project, this project is my baby. And I I don't know. I'm sure that some of you can relate. Maybe not because you have a podcast, but because you are creating something, something that's unique to you. And I got to tell you, being honest, it is terrifying putting something out into the world because you're basically accepting the fact that people are going to see it, they're going to listen to it, they're going to judge it, they're going to nitpick it. they're going to wonder why you didn't do it some other way, like the way that they would have done it. But I don't know. It's easier said than done, but you definitely just got to push those feelings to the side because it doesn't really matter how other people would do it. Because guess what? They didn't do it. (laughs) They didn't put in the sweat, tears, and blood. So I don't know. I'm just telling them to stuff it and you should too. No one knows me better than myself. No one knows you better than yourself. And no one knows our vision better than us. So, I don't know. Just keep moving forward and try to block everything else out. I, I know that I said earlier, it's much easier said than done, but you just got to try it. Um, I don't really know why I'm giving you this little TED Talk today. <laughs> Definitely going rogue. This is not in my script. Um, but I don't know. It just felt right. Perhaps. I was inspired because somebody out there in the universe really needed to hear that. So if that someone was you, you got this and just tell them to stuff it. Anyways, um, today our case takes us back to Iowa. And if you're wondering what I'm talking about, may I refer you back to the episode that began our 2022 year, the New Year's Eve murder of C.H. Wessel. I put that one out on... I think it was like January 6th, January 8th, I believe. So if you haven't heard it, I would definitely recommend going back to listening uh, to listen to it at some point. Um, it was by far one of my favorite episodes to write because there were just so many crazy details. And I don't know, I've always thought that Iowa was boring, but this case and the case of C.H. Wessel they're pretty wild. So Iowa might not be such a sleepy uh, place after all. Um, Before we get into today's case, I do need to get through a bit of housekeeping. If you aren't already following me on Instagram at mystery Still Unsolved, do me a quick favor and pop on over that follow button. Then you will be notified whenever I create a post that shares pictures, Uh, videos behind the scenes of the cases that we cover everyone's in a full moon I will chat with you guys in the stories sometimes I do live sometimes but I actually hate doing lives it's very intimidating to me to talk to you guys in real time I don't know classic Virgo classic introvert over here if you're so not into social media platforms um one, I don't blame you one bit because it can get really annoying and mundane. And two, no problem. I have a website. It's www.mysterystillunsolved.com. There you can binge my now 89 episodes. Yes, 89. I can't believe it. Next week, we're going to be hitting 90 and I could not be more excited. Uh, go over there and binge every unique, content-packed episode, sure to make that true crime-loving, sleuthing heart of yours soon. Uh, lastly, whether you're new or a Mystery Still Unsolved veteran, if you like what you hear today and you think that other people should partake in the joy that is Mystery Still Unsolved, do me a solid and go over to the Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review. Tell people what you love about it, It's cheap, it's quick, it's easy, kind of like your ex, so why not? Okay, that's all I got, but y'all, I'm about to take you on a metaphysical journey through horrors and atrocities your mind has never previously comprehended, so I'm going to need you to take a seat, put up your tray table, make sure that buckle across your lap is nice and snug because it is going to be a wild ride to Iowa, y'all. Um... I have not felt this paranoid or like creeped out writing a script since my episode that I did um, a long time ago. It was the stalking murder of Dorothy Jane Scott. Every single time I would sit down to do this episode, I would get so paranoid. Every sound that I heard, I'd be like, what was that? What was that? I started having like nightmares writing this script along with the one back in the day Oh my gosh. It doesn't happen to me too often. So that's why I'm always creeped out because I'm like, why am I getting creeped out? Is the spirit of the bad person like haunting me right now? But yeah, I was pretty, pretty freaked. Um, but I don't know. Just thought I'd tell you that so that way you can, I'm so excited to get this episode out of the way so I could just stop thinking about it because it was really, really, really creeping me out. All right. So without further delay. Let's do this. So I never have to talk about the axe murders of Velisca ever again. (laughs) Okay. Sometime between the evening of June 9th, 1912 and the morning of June 10th, 1912, an unspeakable atrocity hit the small town of Villisca, Iowa, in the likes of which Iowa had never seen. On the morning of June 10th, it was about 7 a.m., which nobody should be up at 7 a.m., I'm just saying. But Mary Peckham was outside and she was doing her morning chores. She was in the middle of hanging up her laundry to dry when she had this sudden realization. She hadn't seen or heard a single member of the Moore family all morning. And this was very odd because she had seen Josiah and Sarah only the night before at a church program, and the Moores hadn't mentioned anything about leaving town. She wondered if possibly the family had gotten ill during the night. But even then, why would a single sound not be resonating within the home? Mary Peckin had raised her fair share of children, and she knew when children are sick, they can be quite loud and ornery, like there's a lot of crying. Soon Mary's curiosity grew, and she just had to make her way over to the Moore's house and, you know, make sure everything was all right. Mary knocked on the Moore's door, but nobody answered. She tried to open the door, but the door was locked. Mary decided to let the Moore's chickens out of their coop, and she phoned Ross Moore, who was Josiah's brother. Like Mary, Ross received no response when he knocked on his brother's door. He, too, found that quite odd. Ross began to get worried, so he retrieved the spare key his brother had entrusted to him, and he used that key to get inside of the home. While Mary Peckham waited outside on the porch, Ross went into the parlor. He knew immediately that something was off because... Every single mirror or reflective surface had been covered with some sort of a fabric or an article of clothing. Ross immediately ran to the guest bedroom and opened the door, where he found the deceased and mutilated bodies of Ina and Lena Stillinger, partially in their beds. However, they were arranged in a most disturbing and morose display for shock value. Ross ran out of the house and instructed Mary Peckham to hurry and call Henry Hank Horton, the Vallisca's peace officer. Upon Hank's arrival, he surveyed the home where he made even more gruesome discoveries. Josiah and Sarah Moore, along with their four children, Herman, 11, Mary Catherine, 10, Arthur, 7, and Paul, 5, and their two house guests, Ina May, 8, and Lena, 12, had all been bludgeoned to death with an axe sometime during the night. The murder weapon, belonging to Josiah, was found in the guest room where the Stillinger sisters lay. A medical examiner determined that the murders had taken place sometime between the hours of 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. But before we go any further, I want to discuss what went on the night before this gruesome discovery, back when the Moore family and the Stillinger sisters were still alive and well. Sarah and her husband were prominent and well-liked members of the community. Sarah had organized a church program that almost anyone who was anyone in Villisca had attended. After the program, at about 9.30 p.m., the two Stillinger sisters got separated from their parents. They were too afraid to walk home alone in the dark, so Sarah Moore told the girls that they were more than welcome to come to their home and spend the night and then walk home in the morning. While at the church, Sarah attempted to call the girls' parents. Their sister answered the phone and told Sarah that her parents had not yet returned to the home, but that she would deliver the message to her mother as soon as they came back. So with all of their ducks in a row, the Moore family walked to their home that wasn't too far from the church, arriving there sometime between 9.45 and 10 p.m. And I don't know, the whole Stillinger sister situation is devastating to me because I think it's safe to say that if the two girls had been brave enough to brave the dark journey back to their own home that night, it's certainly quite possible that they would not have been murdered that night. I also want to share with you the fact that when the peacemaker, Hank Morton, made this gruesome discovery, he quickly realized this was a little bit above his pay grade. So he made his way back into town to alert the sheriff. While on his way back to the house, he stopped by a local supermarket and made the grave mistake of telling someone about the murders. This began a series of events that would do nothing but harm this investigation. One person told another, who told five, who told two, who told three, who told the local telephone operator who took it upon themselves, wow, what a hero, to inform the whole town of the murders of the moor, the Moors, and it wasn't long before everyone was going to the Moore home with the hopes of gawking at their mutilated bodies. This kind of reminds me of the episode I covered. Um, it was the Torn Love Letters. I think it was either like, I think it was not this February, maybe the February before, but maybe it was this February. I don't know. But There was this couple. They were found murdered. They were underneath a tree stump. And so everyone and their dog came out to look at their bodies. And then some brilliant person had the idea that they should smash the tree stump into a gazillion pieces. So, you know, everyone could take a piece of the tree home with them as a sort of gory, disturbing, morose souvenir. I watched a documentary regarding the axe murders of Veliska, and there was a part in it where the narrator said something along the lines of, Hundreds of people traipsed through the home. This might have tainted the investigation from the beginning, to which I audibly shouted at my television, Uh, you think? Duh, you stupid idiot! I certainly think having hundreds of people contaminate a crime scene would certainly harm the investigation. Man, people are so dense. Like I know that we didn't know about DNA and stuff back in 1912, but like just have some common sense and be like, "Hey, some people were murdered here. Maybe I shouldn't be here." Um after police got the people the heck out of the house, which I'm sure was a chore in and of itself, they searched the home. In the attic, they found two spent cigarettes, which they felt suggested that the killer or killers patiently waited inside of the attic until the Moore family and the Stillinger sisters had fallen asleep. Sidebar. It could also just mean that some dudes were touring the house, stopped upstairs for a smoke, but I guess we'll never know because some idiots decided to walk through the house like it was some sort of murder victim museum. Ugh, so annoying. The killers began their murderous spree in the master bedroom where Josiah and Sarah Morley sleeping. Josiah received the most blows of any of the victims. The ME report claims that his face had been cut to such an extent that his eyes were not only damaged, but like, completely missing. They have no idea where they are. When I read that detail, I thought perhaps Josiah was the intended victim and that everyone else were simply casualties. However, then I read that all of the victims were bludgeoned to death with the butt of the axe except for one, Sarah Moore, the mother, who was the only victim who was not only bludgeoned with the butt of the axe, but also cut and sliced with the blade of the axe. And this made me pivot a little bit. Um, I feel like maybe this suggests that Sarah was the intended victim, and perhaps Josiah was simply given more blows because he would have been the killer or killer's biggest threat as he was the only adult male presence in the house who would provide them with any real, you know, Threat or issues during the attack. Herman, Mary Catherine, Arthur, and Paul were killed next. They were all killed in the same manner as their father. Afterwards, after the murderer killed all the children upstairs, he returned to the master bedroom to inflict even more blows to the more parents. Then the killer or killers made their way downstairs to the guest bedroom, where they killed Ina and Lena. What was interesting about the scene in the guest bedroom is that the killer positioned the girls in an odd fashion. Also, there was a four-pound slab of bacon carefully wrapped in a dish towel, and this bacon had been taken out of the Moore's own icebox and laid, like displayed meticulously next to the axe in the room. Investigators at the scene believe that all of the victims, except for little 12-year-old Lena Stillinger, had been asleep when murdered. They thought this because, um, apparently she was the only one who was found, like, in a different position in her bed, and she also had some defensive wounds on her arms. Lena's nightgown had been pushed up to her waist, and she was wearing no undergarments, suggesting that perhaps the killer may have assaulted her or attempted to sexually assault her before fleeing the scene. This terrible and unspeakable crime rocked this tiny town. People in this town had never encountered such a heinous and ugly crime. Against children. Against a family as sweet as the Moore family. No one could wrap their heads around who could possibly have the motive to do such a thing to such a kind family. The Moore family didn't appear to have any enemies. I mean, sure. There were people who didn't like them. Nobody is liked by everyone. But Nobody didn't like them enough to do this. Over time, many possible suspects emerged. We'll go over some of the most probable now, well, most of them because I'm going to get into my theory. So, seriously, if you haven't buckled in, you're going to need to buckle in when you hear my theory because no one has ever talked about it. But I think it has some I think it has some momentum under it. Okay, So one of the first men suspected was a man by the name of Reverend George Kelly. Kelly was an English-born traveling minister who happened to be in town on the night of the murders. Reverend Kelly was described by many as a peculiar and possibly having like some sort of mental issue. As a child, he had suffered a mental breakdown at one point, and 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 as an adult, he had been accused multiple times of peeping into the bedrooms of several young women and asking young girls to pose nude for him, you know, for the sake of art, you know, when your are like friendly pastor or minister asks you to pose nude for the sake of art, you know when that happens? Not. <laughs> Creepy. All right. So on June 8th, 1912, he came to Veliska to teach at the Children's Day Services. Oh, that's just great. Whose brilliant idea was that? A guy with a history like that should definitely be working with young children. Come on. The Moore family had actually dropped off their own children the day before their murders because, as I said, Sarah was kind of busy running around doing errands for her church program that evening. Okay, so not only was Reverend Kelly a suspect of great interest because he was a little nutty and based on how the cylinder girl's bodies were posed and his history of asking young girls to pose nude for him, people didn't think it would be so far-fetched to think Reverend Kelly capable of doing something like this. Those things, along with the fact that he skipped town on a 5 a.m. train on June 10th, hours before the bodies were discovered, and the fact that he apparently mentioned the murders to people on that 5 a.m. train at a time when the bodies hadn't even been discovered, set off the police's alarm bells. At one point during the police's questioning, during their interrogation, Reverend Kelly actually did confess the murders. However, He immediately recanted this confession, but it didn't matter. The Villisca Police Department took him to trial, where the jury took one look at his bloodied and bruised face, and they found Reverend Kelly not guilty. His confession was written off as a result of being beaten up so harshly while being interrogated. Many people felt that, yes, Reverend Reverend Kelly was weird. He was a weirdo, but they also felt that he was being used as a scapegoat. Another suspect was a business owner by the name of Frank Fernando Jones. He was a longtime resident of Villisca, and he was actually an Iowa state senator, too. Josiah had worked for Frank Jones at one point at his implement store for many, many years before leaving to open up his own implement store. (laughs) Therefore, he became one of Frank's biggest competitors. Moore supposedly even took business away from Jones. One deal that made Frank Jones particularly angry was when Moore signed a contract with John Deere with the stipulation that his implement store would be the only store where John Deere products could be sold. It had also been rumored that Josiah Moore had had a sexual affair with one of Frank's daughter-in-laws. There's no official documentation for that claim, but it was a rumor that was going around at that time. Another possibility that was, was that Jones himself had not murdered the Moore family, that, but that perhaps he hired a man by the name of William Blackie Mansfield to do it. All right, so nine months before the murders in Villisca, a very similar case of an axe murdering had occurred in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Two other axe murders followed the path of a popular train route at the time. It was the the Southern Pacific Railroad, which headed from east to west and back again. Just kind of went east, west, east, west, east, west. One in Ellsworth, uh, Kansas, and another in Paola, Kansas. The cases were similar enough that it was possible that all of the axe murders along the Southern Pacific Railroad track had been committed by the same person. So the murderer for these previous crimes had also spent quite a bit of time in the attic, waiting for the family to fall asleep. Um, This suspect had also covered up all the mirrors and victims' faces with fabric. This assailant um, in this string of crimes was dubbed the Axeman of New Orleans. These murders are still officially unsolved to this day, but it has always been suspected that William Mansfield was responsible. And I mean, that is pretty weird. Like, not all—I don't think the axe murderings were very um odd back in the day because there are a lot of axe murderings happening back then. Um, but I think that it was particularly the covering up of the mirrors and the faces that kind of made police think, "Huh, he's doing a lot of things similar to our case." could be a signature. I don't know. So Mansfield was brought to trial for the murders of the Moore family and the Sillinger sisters. However, he was later released for lack of evidence. And later, Mansfield even won a lawsuit that he brought against the Villisca Police Department, who accused him, and he was awarded $2,225, which would be the equivalent to about $1.3 million today. Henry Lee Moore, who has no relation to the Moore family, was a suspected serial killer. He's another suspect in this case, and he was convicted in the murders of his mother and grandmother several months before the Moore family and the Stillinger sisters were killed. Uh, Henry Lee Moore's weapon of choice was also an axe, which made him an interest to the police. However, again, they didn't have enough evidence to prove that Henry had been anywhere near Villisca during the time of the murders. Lastly, our last suspect is Paul Mueller, and Paul Mueller was an immigrant from Germany who was the subject of an unsuccessful three-year manhunt. Um, He was the sole suspect in the 1897 axe murder of a family in West Brookfield, Massachusetts, who had employed him as a farmhand. Apparently, (laughs) there were a series of murders that coincided wherever Paul Mueller happened to be. Um, the only common factor in all of those cases was that Paul had either worked with, befriended, or communicated with those families before their morbid demise. Paul tended to select families who lived near a railroad track in order to give him a quick getaway. It just so happens that the Moors and the Stillinger sisters were staying in a home within walking distance of the railroad station and it's very possible that their home was just selected at random by either Mueller or some other creep who would wait until his victims were asleep, ambush them at midnight with the blunt side of an, an axe, um, and, and just kill them. And maybe it was just a random thing after all. Along with Paul being convicted of similar crimes, the house near the railroad and the features of the crime being similar, he also would cover up mirrors. It was believed that his crimes could be sexually motivated his sexual deviancy made him attracted to to pubescent girls, which might explain why Lena, the only 12-year-old, the only pubescent girl in the home, was the only child to be partially disrobed. All right, so because of the morbid and confusing details of this case, I mean, come on. Mirrors being covered? Bacon left displayed delicately and intentionally at the crime scene that's pretty freaking unusual this case received a lot of attention its story has been captured in popular culture for decades there's a movie about it ghost adventures has toured the house on one of their episodes it was featured on a podcast episode by my favorite murder um i watched a short episode of of uh, Ryan and Shane on like BuzzFeed um and they did a tour of the home. I think they actually stayed the night. And I don't know, it just has always gotten a lot of interest based on the severity and the the terribleness of the crime, but also like the weird details. Um a lot of people suspect that the family was drugged and that's why nobody woke up while they were being murdered because I would like to think That if I was in bed sleeping next to my husband and he was being beaten to death with an axe, I would like to think that I would wake up. I think that (laughs) I'm pretty sure I'd wake up. So it doesn't make any sense why like nobody except for Lena woke up during this attack. All right. So this massacre home was acquired by a private buyer who decided to make the home a little museum for paranormal ghost hunters and the public to take part in. The home itself has acquired the reputation of being haunted. People claim that they have seen apparitions or heard the voices of children or felt like this dark, menacing spirit while touring the property. One security guard hired by the museum said that one night he was watching the property like he did every night, and he went upstairs to, you know, just kind of do a look about. But before he did, he made sure that he locked the kitchen door. He specifically remembers locking the kitchen door. While upstairs checking out the children's bedroom, he heard someone open the kitchen door and walk into the house. Assuming it was a trespasser, he decided he would play a little prank on them. He hid in the children's closet and waited. He waited and waited and waited until finally the footsteps came up the stairs and into the children's bedroom. He burst the door open and yelled, but wouldn't you know? There wasn't anything or anyone in the room with him. The only thing he sensed was a dark energy, a dark presence that sucked the air right out of him. One of the craziest things that has happened in the home post-1912 is that on November 7th, 2014, while a paranormal investigator and his crew were staying overnight, the main guy, like the main guy of the show, was eerily stabbed in the chest by an unseen entity. That's freaking wild. (laughs) Many people wonder also, like, why were the mirrors and the victims' faces covered? Well, I think it goes without saying that the victims' faces were most likely covered because whoever did this felt some sort of remorse after doing it. This is pretty well known within the true crime community. I think the mirrors were covered because he either could not fathom the sight of himself while committing the murders, or he was filled with such remorse that he couldn't view the faces of his victims or even bear the thought of looking at himself after he committed the crime. Um, There's also that question about the four-pound bacon. <laughs> it's so random. Okay, so there's a lot of theories about that. Some people just think that it was a person that went through the Moore's icebox, found the bacon and was like, hey, they're not going to use it. So I'll just take it home with me. But then he forgot it and he just like left it by the axe. But I don't think so. I think that there has to be something because it was displayed next to the axe. I don't know. And a lot of people think that there's maybe more of like a sexual deviancy to it. Like maybe he posed the bodies of the girls, the Stillinger sisters, and then used the bacon as like a makeshift vagina, but there's no evidence to prove that. Like I don't think that they ever found any bodily fluid on there, but that's just like an idea that's going around in the universe. So I thought I would bring it up. The truth of the matter is that whoever committed these murders would have been very messy afterwards. Um his clothes were probably saturated in his victim's blood. I can't imagine that he was able to hide, like sneak into the night, without a single soul seeing him. Either that, or he may have showered or somehow washed up before exiting the home. I know he spent a lot of time there. This case is over 100 years old, and still with no resolve, the victims, Josiah, Sarah, Ina, Lena, Mary Catherine, Arthur, Paul, and Herman, still do not have justice. Their souls are not at peace. Even though this cold case is so cold, it's got like icicles on its icicles on its icicles. um, I do hope that one day we will discover the truth. Because in 1912, eight people were systematically murdered, execution style, in their beds as they slept. It's unbelievable to me that not one person heard or saw a thing. It just seems wild, but I mean, it happens every day. So maybe it almost seems like this is a story, like a figment of our imagination that we tell to each other during, like, campfire, like, telling ghost stories at a campfire. It's just so outrageous and appalling, but it really happened. It really happened. It happened to eight undeserving people, including six children, 12 years and younger. Many people believe that the spirits of the eight victims will forever haunt the home until the truth is finally revealed. But... If we're being honest, I don't think this case ever will be solved simply because, I mean, it was a very, very, very long time ago. The DNA might be any DNA that they collected, which they probably didn't even collect any. Is probably so like disintegrated that you can't even use it. And also the the, the scene was contaminated by hundreds and hundreds of people who toured the scene before the sheriff even got there. Okay, so now it's the time in the episode where I hop on over to my Rochelle box, (laughs) hop, 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 and I let you know my thoughts about who I think did it. Okay. This is wild because it doesn't have anything to do with any of the suspects that we've talked about thus far. So I told you, buckle in your seatbelts, buckle in your seatbelts. This is not supported by anything that you will read on this story online. Okay. Okay. So Remember at the beginning of my retell of this case, I told you that upon Ross Moore's entering into the home, so Ross Moore, remember, is Josiah's brother, he entered with his spare key. Do you remember where I told you Ross checked first? Think about it. do 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 do, do. Okay, if you said, Is it the guest room? Uh you'd be right. <laughs> now, why would Ross immediately go into the guest bedroom unless he somehow knew that there were people staying there that night? I also think There is some validity in the idea that the person who often discovers the bodies is a person of great particular interest. Now, I have no proof of this, but I do find it really very interesting that Ross would enter the home of his brother Josiah, and I assume that Ross was familiar with the layout of his brother's home. So why would he go in and not immediately go upstairs where he knows that the family sleeps? He knows his brother's bedroom is upstairs. He knows that the kids' bedrooms are upstairs. Why did he check the guest bedroom first? I find this very curious and it's something that no one ever talks about. So I think it's worth taking a little looky-loo at. Ross also had a spare key. Which means he had access to his brother's home whenever he wanted it. It's not a crazy, far out idea that he could have entered the home while his brother and his family were out, waited for them to go to sleep, gotten out at midnight, killed his brother and his brother's wife for whatever reason, and their children and their unexpected guests, and then just simply let himself out and locked up using his own spare key. Now, my theory is not without holes. I understand that. The one major thing that I'm lacking in my theory is motive because try as I might, I was not able to find out anything about Ross and Josiah's relationship. I can only assume that Josiah trusted Ross because, I mean, he did give him his spare key. I don't give my spare key out to people I don't like. And I also don't know if there was any jealousy on the side of Ross towards his brother. I mean, was he jealous of his brother's success in the Implement store? Was he jealous of his brother's relationship to Sarah? Maybe he had a crush on Sarah. Maybe it was reciprocated. Maybe not. Maybe he was jealous of his brother's family. I don't know. Like, I literally don't know anything about about Ross. I was not able to see if he was married, had children, if he was a su- successful person. I have no idea. I don't know. But I would be curious to know what you make of all of this. Do you think it was one of the suspects that I mentioned before? Do you think it was Reverend Kelly? Do you think it was Paul Mueller? Do you think it was that Mansfield murderer guy who's suspected of murdering people? Do you think it was Ross? I don't know. Let me know. So make sure you visit me on Instagram at mystery Still Unsolved and let me know your thoughts, your theories, and your opinions. Also, don't forget to go to my website. It's www.mysterystillunsolved.com and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts if you think that this podcast episode was bomb and you think that more people should hear it. Don't forget to tell your friends and family members about me, but you could also tell your nail tech, your esthetician, your barber, your mother-in-law, your gardener. I want everyone to know about Mysteries Still Unsolved. Thank you all so much for joining me. I love coming into my daughter's closet (laughs) and talking true crime with you guys once a week. Um, And also, don't forget that the best way to support this podcast would be to join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?